the stories, what they do is they externalize our emotional stakes by giving us, whether it's dragons, robots, you know, armies, whatever, they, they make it bigger. But, but in life, we all want to feel, I think need to feel that our existence has meaning. And so the, a story is a way, uh, whether it's like, you know, a little kid's story um, or a great novel, a story is a way of saying that these events are great. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Song of the Mountain, a podcast where we talk about the deep and profound ways that stories impact us and the kind of lives that those stories might be calling us to live. Today, my guest is David Soman, author and illustrator. In fact, the author and illustrator for The Impossible Mountain, which inspired the title for this podcast. We're going to hear about him, his life, talk about the book, and how stories show us the magnitude of our internal world. Let's get started. So before we jump into the interview, I wanted to give you a little background on David Soman. In his own words, he grew up in a family of artists and has always loved drawing and painting. When his mom finally stopped him from doing this on the walls and gave him some paper instead, his career path was set. Over the years, he has illustrated many books and with his wife, Jackie Davis, created and illustrated the New York Times best-selling book series, Ladybug Girl. Their latest collaboration is Agent Lion. And his recent solo books include Three Bears in a Boat, How to Two, and The Impossible Mountain. When not working on a new book or making coffee, David is an instructor at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. David and his family reside in Rosendale, New York, with their big furry dog named Pico. And in this interview, there are so many rich parts of stories that we talk about. And the big one that uh, came through for me was really this idea that stories show us the magnitude of our internal world, that our internal worlds may seem small, but stories give them characters and dimensions and dragons and all kinds of things that show us that our internal world is not as small as we might think. So with that, let's jump into the interview. Hello, David, and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me, Jesse. Um, so let's just jump right in. Um, I'd love for you to start off and just tell us a bit about yourself and your career as an author and illustrator. Uh, well, that's a long question because I've been doing it a long time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. The five-minute version. Yes. The five-minute version is I started sort of by accident, realized I love it, um, had a whole first career as just an illustrator for, oh, I don't know, about 13 14 years, uh, stopped for a little bit. Uh, and then after I had my first child, my daughter, and was reading children's books to her, realized how much I missed doing it and started trying to write my own. Uh, definitely had a few like absolutely no's from publishers. <laughs> but uh, eventually Jackie and I uh, started working, we wanted to work together and we started working on the books that became the Ladybug Girl series. And since then, I've been almost entirely either writing with Jackie or on my own and illustrating our books or my books. Uh, and that's how it's been going. I'm about to start illustrating some other people's books for the first time in a while because it's, it's a fun challenge and I just haven't done it in a while. I missed it. Uh, so uh, 
Is that a good, that's a good nutshell, right? <laughs> yeah, that's great. Now, you may have already answered this question in part when you talked about, you know, reading your your daughter children's books. I was going to ask what drew you to do uh, children's books in particular, since so many of your works are, are children's books. Um, really, pretty much all my professional work is children's book. Um, mm, sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've done a little bit here and there of other stuff, but uh, not really. I, I had a stint helping my stepfather, who's an illustrator, paint. Uh, romance covers <laughs> and that was fun oh, there yeah, you I, go I, okay I <laughs> um you know that's what you do to go to children's books you paint Fabio. Um, <laughs> that's right you start with romance novels of course I, I i loved books i loved reading i loved picture books when i was a kid it was like my favorite thing uh and when i got an opportunity to show work to get a job um it was, I had like I didn't even have a portfolio, a proper portfolio, because I didn't go to art school. I had masks I had carved in Bali and political cartoons from my school newspaper, Oberlin, uh, my school newspaper. Uh, I had some life drawing I had done at the Art Students League, and I brought that in. But somehow uh, the editor, who is who since passed, uh, Richard Jackson, who's an enormously influential figure in the world of picture books and a, a brilliant mind, he saw something in me and he said, "Okay, you can do this," and. After I, it just was an immediate fit for me, um, and I just started doing it. And I never really thought about not doing it. You know, it just like it just was right. I mean, especially once I began writing. I mean, it was years later, but when I began writing them, I really knew that I really loved conjuring these different places and worlds, and and I love the kids. You know, I mean, that's one of the things is going out and uh, reading to audiences, meeting the kids was so much fun. Oh, I can imagine. It seems like there's something so beautifully um, sim- uh, simple and yet immensely complicated about writing a children's book in some ways. It's kind of like when you have a a really complicated idea and you say, hey, now how would you explain that to a five-year-old? And it's so hard to distill it down. And that's what I think of with children's books is these incredibly well-distilled ideas that are deceptively simple on the outside, but take I would imagine a tremendous amount of, of work and, and refinement to actually distill it down to something that works for a kid's book. That's exactly true. Um, I think that's one of the hardest parts about it because the, the heart of a, a children's book, uh, and I teach a class and I was just talking to my students about this yesterday, is, is that you're never talking down to your audience and you can talk mm. about anything. It's just how would you explain this situation to your little niece or, you know, your little brother, your little sister, your nephew, some younger child? Like if you were to imagine sitting there, you can talk about death. You can talk about sex. There's been books about alcoholism. Mm. You know, there's books about abuse. You can go into metaphors. Well, like Dr. Seuss does so much for environmentalism or war or greed. Uh, there, there's nothing you can't touch on. Uh, and as long as you respect your audience, uh, you can really mm. go someplace, and it's just—it's just a matter of finding the right way to talk about the subject without bringing them to into parts of it that they're not ready for. You know, mm. uh, like yeah. that's why why we have ratings on movies, whatever. Like you know, you you if you're gonna do Little Red Riding Hood, many people have, many people have put her in, you know, Grandma in the stomach of the wolf. And you could do it in a way that's sort of funny. You could do it in a way that's a little bit odd. You know, Elizabeth Zwerger, one of my favorite illustrators, has this great picture of like the woodsman pulling grandma out of the the stomach of the wolf. There's no blood. It's just like, okay, yeah, that's what I look like. 
you know, and if you start adding intestines and blood, like then you're, you're in a different realm, but like you can, <laughs> you can find a way to get almost any point across. And you just have to think about, you know, what are children psychologically ready for? I think they're always ready for the truth, but it's how you, it's how you put it into a world that they understand without shocking them too much. I love that. Well, and I love just the idea that really you can tackle these deep and um, challenging topics in a kid's book, like you talked about, like death, sex, environmentalism, all these sorts of things that it sort of breaks some of the stigma that I or maybe we have about children's books that are kids that, oh, they can't handle the truth or they can't handle this or that. That's one of the big differences you'll find. Um, it's also, it's very cultural. You'll find American children's books tend to be much more innocent uh, and sweet than European or Japanese or Korean children's books. Like they will, they will go, a, they will deal with things in much, much more sophisticated ways and often with much less of a nice resolution. Uh, I had a student give me a Korean picture book, which was sort of about family separation uh, under, I guess, North Korean rule. But this little, it's this little kid goes every day to see if their mother is coming home on the tram. And it goes through, it's beautifully illustrated, it goes through all these weathers, but the mother never comes and it ends. It's like, that's it. Every day wow. he goes and nothing ever happens. You know, and it's just like, wow, whoa, like that's not getting published here. You know, but like there, if you like, this is a reality that a kid can handle. And so there's also a cultural aspect of it. Mm, I love that. Um, I would love to talk to you about The Impossible Mountain. And for our listeners, this is actually the book that inspired the title of this podcast. Um, as an aside, and I don't know if I told you this story in our, in our uh, call early this week, David, but I had the whole this whole other title and like artwork for the podcast. And then I read this paragraph, which I'm going to read in just a moment from the book. And I just saw it and I said, oh my goodness, like this is the metaphor and the idea that I really want in the podcast. Um, before I read it, could you just give us like a quick primer of like, what's the story um, about? Well, the story, uh, the story is about a brother and sister, Anna and Finn, uh, who lived their whole lives in a, walled village um it's a place where no one is supposed to leave or rarely does leave and they're bored uh you know being being sheltered like this and one day they climb to the top of the wall and they see the world beyond including this huge mountain and anna decides that they need to see the world and particularly she feels compelled to climb the mountain and so her and her brother leave and the rest of the book is their adventures as they climb to the top of the mountain. Just the whole story in general, why I, it so struck me, especially as we're thinking in this podcast about stories and both the deep impact that they have on us, as well as what kind of lives are they kind of welcoming us into? What are stories saying to us? I, I came across this paragraph and uh, I'll read it. This is right as uh, Anna is looking out and seeing the mountain. Uh, and you write this. After that, the mountain was always in Anna's thoughts, a song she could not stop hearing. As time passed, the song grew stronger and clearer. It was the song about the world outside the village walls, a song about the mountain, a song 
about what might lie beyond it. Anna heard it, and then she knew, plainly knew, she had to climb the mountain. She had to see the world. As I read that paragraph, I said, oh my gosh, this is it. The song of the mountain feels like such a powerful, just that phrase. Um, tell us about that paragraph. Alyssa, um, that was a hard paragraph to write. As a matter of fact, the book was by far the hardest thing I've ever written. And what I wanted from it, I, I guess I, I wasn't entirely sure from the beginning. That's part of what's interesting about writing is you have to write and keep writing and throw out and cancel and rewrite just to figure out what you meant uh, when, when you started. And I think I read a book by uh, Valeria Luisa Selly. She's a writer and she wrote this book about, uh, it's called uh, The Lost Children Archive. And it's in it, these parents get separated from their these two little kids who are siblings and they have like a little mini adventure. And this, I read this around the time of the border crisis. And I just began to think about kids on their own and having to blaze their own path. And I think that then tied into not the story of, you know, kids having to like, you know, cross a Donald Trump's wall or something like that, but just the idea of children having to find their own way. Uh, and, and I think I realized at some point it became more, um, the whole story is, I guess, more of a metaphor, right, for life. And and the mountain, and I think when, when I finally figured out what that chapter was, I mean, the mountain is anybody's goal, anybody's desire. And I think the idea of the song was to find a way to say how, like, what we don't like, some people want to do ski jumps. Some people want to sculpt. Some people want to bake. Some people want to play guitar. Some people want to, you know, study the ocean. You know, we all have these different things that call us. And that was the idea that for it was just the world is out there. Uh, and it something will call to you. And then, of course, along the way, you will face challenges. Uh, the you know, and that was part of also the ending of the book was the idea that you get to the top, but then there's just more, because you know, and that's I think from a Haitian proverb, like after the mountains, more mountains. I think it's a Haitian proverb, mm -hmm. um, and I think it's true. You know, that was it because it's not happily ever after. Like that's not life. You know, life is you you get to a place only to recognize that there's more places to go or more for you to do or more challenges for you to surmount because there always is. Uh, but it's exciting and it's worth, it's worth doing. And just, and as my, I think my editor summed it up, uh, Susan Rich with hard things are worth doing, you know, and that was, mm, that was part I love of that. it too. And what something that seems to fly so much in the face of what kind of modern consumerist culture tells us, which is that easier is better. Right. That the more easeful and convenient your life is, the better it's going to be. And then you can end up in a society like in Wally, where they're all just these blobs watching TV, sipping sodas. Right. And you look at that and go, no, actually, uh, hard, hard doesn't, isn't bad. But I think like, it's like, you know, it's like we all have our phones now, uh, you know, and it's, it's so easy to get a quick little dopamine hit. It's so easy to just find a way to fill your the, the little spaces that exist in your day with nothing, really, you know, but it's fun, right? It's easy. And it's, is it even fun? Like a lot of times if you go on social media, is that even fun? Uh, yes, no, 
but it's and I think I think it's hard once it's it's harder to not do that. It's harder to sit with yourself. It's harder to be bored. You know, it's harder to start a bigger project. And I think we do. My my history professor, uh, all his he always said he, you can follow human history by watching us take the path of least resistance. <laughs> like that was mm. that was what he taught me. Uh, uh, and uh, that that's probably true. <laughs> and so you know, but I don't think that that's necessarily always good. I was so I was listening to a, an interview with this Jungian psychoanalyst. Someone was interviewing him as a uh, Dr. Holis, and he was saying how he was he, the same similar idea, but he was contrasting meaning with happiness. Mm. And he said they're not the same thing. He said, for example, you know, in my therapy practice, it does not make me happy to spend eight hours a day hearing about people's suffering, but it does have meaning. Yeah, and if it if it didn't have meaning, I, you know, I wouldn't do it. And he kind of talked about how when he got to the middle of his life, he was doing all the things that made him happy. He was a tenured professor. He had all the things sort of lined up, but something internally inside of him mm-hmm. was revolting against that. He, as he described it, his psyche uh, autonomously withdrew its approval <laughs> from what he was doing because it, it didn't have meaning. <laughs> I know, I thought, I loved how he put it. And so when I hear your idea, this point about, hey, you know, the, the hard things in life that have meaning they're they're the they're the things that are worthwhile yeah and it's different i don't know i mean i i guess it's a else there's a language i don't know if the proper word some i've heard some people talk about joy versus happiness i don't know sure um but it's i i this being an artist uh is not happy but it's deeply satisfying when you do it but it's not happy happy Mm. is a piece of chocolate cake you know, like, like happy is like, you know, hanging out with your kids or going to a party. I, you know, ha- those things are happy. Um, this work is different, but it's soul satisfying and, and soul crushing when you have those times, which you will inevitably have uh, every, in any art field, you will inevitably have self-doubt and, and periods of public doubt, you know, and, and failure. And that's part of it. Uh, and you, if if all you want from it is happiness, you're not going to get it, you know. And I think, and I don't know that happiness is the right aim for meaning, right? Like he said. Yeah, indeed. I mean, that's it's. I think that's that's always been my experience with any work that I'm putting some part of my genuine self into. So so I never felt this that the struggles you were talking about as an artist. I never felt those struggles when I worked my comfy tech jobs. Right. I only felt them once I started to build my own business and actually say things that mattered to me and build things that matter to me. So I heard um, David White is a poet that I love. And he in his book, The um, uh, Work as Pilgrimage, he talks about how all good work has this air of life and death to it. Like there's this feeling that something's on the line, that like I'm putting something really valuable into the world. And as I hear you describing your life as an artist, it's like there's a risk there that, um, that brings tremendous meaning, but can also bring tremendous heartache well, it, it and means, struggle. It means something to you, you know? And I, I think that ties into stories in general, you know, where the stories, what they do is they externalize our emotional stakes by giving us, whether it's dragons, robots, you know, armies, whatever, they, they make it bigger, but 
in life, we all want to feel, I think need to feel that our existence has meaning. And so a story Mm -hmm. is a way, uh, whether it's like, you know, a little kid's story um, or a great novel, a story is a way of saying that these events are great, you know, and if the reader's not necessarily like, you know, whatever, whether it's going to be Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, uh, the reader is not going to do that, obviously. And, you know, but you may have that desire, right, to be there to do that because you want meaning. But our meaning will be found here. And that's just as hard. You know, and that's and that's what's difficult, mm. I think, for all of us. And I think especially in a world where, you know, it's it's not easy to make a living either. And so, you, you know, many of us and I've, I've done my share with that, you're going to end up in jobs for a while, maybe longer, where you don't get satisfaction from that work. And then how do you deal like what do you do with what time you have? And I think it's it's a difficult thing. I don't know if anyone ever I don't think there's ever some mythical time where people are like. Back when we were serfs, it was also meaningful to dig potatoes. Like I don't know that, you know, there was ever some moment <laughs> in history that that all humans could access their meaning. But I think stories speak to that part of all of us, whether or not we can do it. That that's part of life, and and mm-hmm. that yearning to feel the stakes, like you said, uh, or David White said, like it is sort of life or death when you are doing something you care about. And I think that's what the story externalizes, even if what you're doing is just running whatever, a little bookstore or, you know, having a vegetable cart or me, I'm I'm just, I'm drawing pictures of bears and clothes, you know, like it's it's far from life or death or or important, you know, like it's just not, (laughs) but because it feels important to me, it has that meaning, you know, I know objectively it has none you know it, but to me it does i mean yes people like books i mean yes there's there's that but but like you know it's i'm not doing something that is heroic that way at, at all but when i engage with the work i feel that in me because i feel emotionally connected to it uh psychologically connected to it. if i have a bad day you know i'm like oh you know hang my head um, you know it, it's it, it feels like I lost something. Yeah, I love that. And it it re- sort of brings me back to that moment where, you know, Anna looks out and sees the mountain and decides to decides to go and gets all this, you know, criticism from people. I wonder if you would be uh, open to sharing about a time in your life where you felt compelled to leave your village <laughs> into something unknown. Yes, I I mean I when I was 16 I hitchhiked to California and back. Um, which is odd, coming from New York City. <laughs> so I have, wow. I have left and come back. Uh, I've, tr- I've, I picked, I've done things like I've traveled and picked coffee in Nicaragua, and I've, I went to school in Southeast Asia for a bit. Um, so I did, I do, but I can't say that I ever had obstacles to that. I mean, I maybe my mom should have been more of an obstacle when I was like later on my hiking. <laughs> but but you know, she's like, see ya. Here's a sandwich. She was. <laughs> I mean, she was, and in a nice way, it was fine. But I mean, that was also the times when I grew up and where growing up in New York City at the, in that era. That was normal. Like all my friends did stuff like that, so it wasn't like 
you thought like you were, Oh, I'm a trailblazer. You're like, no, you're just doing whatever, you know, Oh, they're doing it. I'll do it too. You know, like I was not like some kind of like wild daredevil kid. Like I'd like to stay home and draw pictures, you know, like definitely. And, but I did feel called, right. I did hear the, whatever Jack Kerouac's song of the road, you know, I did feel like that was something I really wanted to do. And so I did it, but I don't having, um, had really a supportive mom uh she's never ever been like no you can't do that and neither has you know i've never i've had very few straight jobs so i've rather had rarely had a boss being like you you suck i got fired a few times for waitering but you know i deserved it (laughs) me too yeah every waiter gets fired at some point but so i don't know what it's like to have to overcome external obstacles i know overcoming internal ones like that that is true uh, you know, and that's what mm. I think. Again, I think a lot of us face that. I think you can face that in relationships. You know, you when you if you're going to be honest with yourself and you're part of it, I think you face it in in all arts. You know, music, writing, whatever. Like trying. You know, you face it when you try something new. Uh, you know, like the space I'm sitting in, I built, and I had no idea how to build anything. And for me, that was one of those things like, I'm going to do this. And, you know, and I was on the roof and I'm scared of heights, you know, and I was just like, I can do this. I, can do this. <laughs> <laughs> I think I can. I think, I think I can. Exactly. The little engine that could. Yeah. That's, you know, like. Right. Yep. Like, See, children's stories. This. Exactly. Yeah. Well, exactly. Right. You think they, they stick and they do. And and that's what I mean. Like, it, like, and for little kids, part of it is also, I mean, this is what uh, Jack and I did with Ladybug Girl. Uh, we recognize watching our kids that their every day is superhero stuff. Like, like for them to do, mm. to make a friend is a big deal. To like to try new food, to like go in the ocean, to get think they get lost. Like any adventure, learn how to say sorry. These are all big deals, and so it's like when you talk about it to them, uh, you make it feel a little bigger because that's how it feels for us. It's we're used to it and it's easy to forget how uh for our audience every day is is the impossible mountain you know every day is learning some new thing trying some new thing having to push themselves past a comfort level you know and 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 that's difficult you know that that internal voice is also we externalize it in stories we have foes you know in real life we don't you know i mean yeah we get a, a crappy boss you know or president you know <laughs> yeah but you know like these things happen right but uh most of us are not you know luckily in ukraine with an act with an actual enemy to fight you know that's when that happens that's true heroism uh, but most of us have have our smaller much smaller moments uh with ourselves and i think that's also what stories speak to i love that and i love the just the 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 illustration of how the the internal things that we experience have so much greater magnitude than the than you would see in the external world like your experience of as a kid of going up and making a friend or even as adult going up and making a friend is is actually pretty enormous and i love yeah your description of stories and how they really they provide this kind of they sort of provide the spaciousness and kind of epic nature of what's going on in that unseen world. I think that's the whole point of it. I guess like myths too, right? Like the, just the idea of taking our 
internal life and making it external is where a lot of stories really work. Mm, yeah, I I love that. Well, I, even um, I've been obsessed with the the Sandman series on Netflix. It starts off with you know the whole notion of the idea that you're you're going to this other dimension when you dream that is sort of run by Morpheus, the god of dreams. And what a beautiful, profound way of of kind of externalizing or or just even having a fun idea of what could be going on in this mysterious dream world that we disappear to every night and then wake up as though nothing really happened. And so I I love that, you know, that kind of idea of stories painting the, our internal world in language that that kind of adequately describes it, that nothing else kind of does. Uh yeah, the uh I I, I totally agree like with with that series, I'll have to, I remember the comic books. I loved the world that he built, you know, and that was a lot of fun. And I think, yeah, with stories, I mean, that's the thing where we're always, we're always trying to like what we feel inside is big. And like, you can do a totally realistic show or movie or book or painting. And the art is making those feelings matter. You know, it doesn't, you mm. don't, you don't have to make it too fantastic. It doesn't have to be Star Wars. You know, you can do something that is much smaller and still get the stakes across of whatever, of a marriage falling apart. You can find, uh, you know, the, the stakes are there. You know, like uh, my Jack and I were watching the, the show The Bear. Have you seen that? I don't know if I have. It's, it's, about, it's about this guy coming back to run his, his dead brother's restaurant. And it does a great job of capturing uh, cooking life and having worked in a kit near a kitchen. Like guys, I like that part. Um, but it's like the stakes are nothing. I mean, and, you know, they are like, will his business succeed? But the drama of the interpersonal relationships and how much it means to various characters is as rich as anything you're going to find in fantasy, you know, because they do such a good job of making the emotions present. Mm, that's great. Um, I wanted to ask a couple other questions about a few things I noticed at the end of, or sort of in the midst of uh, the impossible mountain. One is I loved how um, Anna responds to all the people who are trying to discourage her from leaving. She doesn't give like a screw you to those people. She doesn't say <laughs> go to hell, like, I, like get off my back. She has this amazingly calm sort of almost sovereign sense of self that she just calmly responds. No, I, I think I can do that. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about, about that. I think, I mean, honestly, I think part of it was that the character needed to be confident because what she was undertaking was ridiculous, you know? Um, and so part of it was a way of showing that. And also, I mean, honestly, on another level, it's also uh, one of the differences between stories and real life is again, in the story, you need to externalize the, the tension, the, the opposition. You need to, it couldn't just, I, I could have done a picture of Anna sat all night being awake, doubting her ability to get to the top of the mountain, but she decided she could or knew she could. And you could do that, but it's a little bit more story when those voices are made external. And I think like I, when, when we first, when I, the first thing that I wrote, by, not by myself, but with Jackie, it was the first Ladybug Girl book. We sent it around a lot, got rejected by everyone, except one editor who wrote back saying, you know, this looks cute, but there's not a story there. It's just a day in the life. And I was like, well, that was the point. 
like this is a real kid. And, you know, we went back and forth a little bit and she was like, well, you know, real life isn't a story. And I was like, huh. And that's when we began to add in things to that story because you need to have tension. You need to have, you need to have that kind of conflict in a story. And so sometimes the, the, a story will have things in it that are part of the mechanics of the story. You need something to overcome. You need a problem to be resolved. You need a goal to be reached. But in the end, it's all really just part of the inner thing. Like the, in The Impossible Mountain, it's about finding what speaks to you in the world, what calls to you, and, and going for it, even though it's hard. Right. That and and so all of the obstacles, they could all be different obstacles in a certain way. And it would still be the same story. That makes sense? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um I, I wanted to touch on that the comment um that real life isn't a story. Was that your uh was that did you say was that Jackie that mentioned it? No, it was, it was our editor sent um regretfully since retired. Yeah, Liz Wineski, who's a fantastic editor who helped us with Ladybug Girl. Um but in general, stories, a lot of stories will find more heavy-duty tension than most of us experience in our daily living, right? And that's what, you know, crime fiction or whatever, you know, we, there's a reason Stephen King is so popular. You know, like there's a reason we're, we're looking, we're, it's all the externalization of, light, of the difficulties that we face inside. Uh, and just made into more fun external things, you know? And that's what the artist does. That's what makes it exciting. It helps us just see that internal world with, like you said, the stuff that's that's cool. Because the internal world, it strikes me as so kind of amorphous and so kind of abstract in a way. And so to have these kind of concrete characters and obstacles, um, I remember I heard someone say, uh, you know, looking at dragons in mythology, you know why? Why did we create these stories of of a, a, this large, fierce reptilian creature that guards treasure? And he said, "Well, it's because sometimes the thing you want or need most is in the place you least want to go." And mm. so that's something I talk to my son about all the time. Is he, you know, will be playing games or playing like Zelda: Breath of the Wild, and he's like, "But there's no like real monsters to fight." And I'm like, first of all, Liam, you would never want to fight some of those monsters, but like yeah, but what are what are the obstacles and and monsters in your life that you are having a hard time overcoming and realizing that there's more connection there than than you realize? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that's a. I mean, probably Freud would have a heyday with dragons and snakes. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Yeah, that's a whole other podcast episode. Um, well, I wanted to um, I wanted to end with this one uh scene or in the very end, which is only illustrated is I love how in the end it appears that Anna comes back to the village. That um, you have this scene where she comes back and people welcome her in. And I thought that was just a lovely ending. It because And it really re-emphasized her departure. It wasn't like, it wasn't a screw you. It was, it was she's going out to do something she needed to do. And she came back. Um, I'm curious to know, um, you know, just for you to speak to that a little bit. Well, it's funny because the, the story actually... Um went through many changes and in several of the versions that was in the story was uh, different was was the were the villagers following her up the mountain 
that she was actually oh. literally going to be blazing a trail. And we even played with the idea that she was carrying little paint or something and marking the trees and that they follow her up. And when she gets to the very top, they're all there. They all come. When she first sees when she sees all the mountains, it's right after all the villagers join her. And so that was a, a version of it. But it became, to me, a little too a Disney, you know, as a, as a story. And, it, and I thought it lost what what it then made it about her as a trailblazer and a hero leading to a, a new horizon. And what I wanted it to be more was a story about finding the thing that speaks to you. But the idea, we didn't want to lose the idea of her uh, being a part of a community. And so when she comes back, the idea is that she's they're happy she's alive obviously right uh, <laughs> yeah but 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 it's also i think that now that she's done that they're going to feel capable of doing that too i mean one would have thought that since andre the giant is in that scene that he might have done it on his own but he didn't <laughs> yeah right why not andre the giant come on yeah come um, on big guy <laughs> yeah that's wonderful well i love that uh i love that she comes back and that there's this yeah this kind of warm welcome yeah. Uh, well, yeah. David, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on the show with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for naming your podcast after something I wrote. I'm, I'm on. You're welcome. Yeah, it's it's my honor to, to talk with you. All right. Well, I think with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up. All right, everybody, that's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed hearing about David Soman and all the rich insights he has about stories and how they impact our lives. This week, I hope you'll think about your emotional world and the way stories are externalizing that. And are the stories you love externalizing something that you are not aware of yet inside of you? With that, I'm Jesse Livingston, and I'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.